Our next guest is a very special person. She's a recovery coach, a peer recovery support advocate, a public speaker, a trainer, a program workshop and curriculum developer for addiction and substance abuse. She covers difficult subjects from addiction to hard drugs and surviving sex trafficking and coming out the other side. She's all about finding hope and embracing a new life in recovery. That's up next on Recovery Talks, the podcast. Direct from Akron, Ohio, the epicenter of modern recovery. This is Recovery Talks, the podcast. From those in recovery to those working in recovery, meet those who are shining the light on Recovery Talks right now. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Recovery Talks, the podcast. I'm Mark Shannon. I'm your host. And today I'm here with China Darrington. China and I met at an event, a recovery event, and her role at that event was project coordinator for uh, Summit County Opiate and Addiction Task Force. But then we talked, and I found out that there's a really super cool background in history with China. So let me just say thank you for coming on our podcast today. And thank you for being here and being willing to share your story with our listeners. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. So if you listen to this podcast, you know that this podcast is really to sort of, you know, shine a light on people that are in the community uh, that are making it. I like to hold the lantern up to people that are like, you know, there is a stigma attached with addiction, but you know what? There are a bunch of us out there that have made it and are still working, are working in the community to try and, do some good things. And this podcast really is about, you know, recovery from addiction of any kind. It can be trauma, mental health, physical disabilities. It could be for people that may be curious about recovery or got that little nagging feeling like, am I, do I, am I one of those people? You know, maybe you've tried before and you keep coming back. Maybe you're here and you need some reinforcement. So that's what this podcast is all about. But what I want to do with China is I want to rewind before we talk about her current work and what she currently does in our community. I want to go back a little bit and and really talk a little bit about what we did in our our first discussion when we were talking about what your background is and how did you get here? Tell our listeners a quick, quick story about how, how you got here. Sure. Well, the five-minute version, uh, it starts, you know, in a galaxy uh, far, far away, but not very far because I've always been kind of local to Summit County. I grew up in North Summit County on a 180-acre farm. I want to say I had the traditional two parents and, you know, supportive family and all that stuff, but I had an incident happen to me uh, when I was pretty young that kind of added a a dimension to my experience. And I realized that my addiction kind of keyed into that later on and made that work. And that was, I I was part of uh, human trafficking, sex trafficking, that somebody who was a very prominent businessman in Summit County, Ohio, you know, he kind of had a, a number of children and teenagers that he exploited And I happened to be one of them. And that was my experience from ages four to nine. And then when I was nine, he was arrested and he was put on trial and he eventually did go to jail. But I was a nine-year-old that had a head full of knowledge that other nine-year-olds didn't have. And 
I took that with me. And, and as you can imagine, that came into some problems later on when I would get, get invited to slumber parties or have uh, casual conversation at birthday events. And, you know, my parents would try and say, oh, that's over and done with. And you don't have to talk about that anymore. But I, I didn't know why I wasn't supposed to talk about it either. So when I was a teenager, that kind of came back in terms of I know something and I have done things that my peers have not experienced. And of course, puberty hits and all that good stuff. I happened to be involved in a, in a sport called freestyle BMX at the same time. So I did that in my, in my early teens and I got very good, very quick. And one thing that I didn't anticipate was I was like the only girl doing it at the time. So when I started competing, I started to get a whole bunch of attention because I was kind of this cute little uh, unusual thing in a, a teenage boys industry. And so I got a lot of media attention and um, was out of school a lot because I was traveling, touring, doing BMX shows and contests and practicing and all that good stuff. Right. And this this was when BMX was blowing up, if I know the timeline. It was. Right. It was in the 80s, right. the 1980s. Right, 86, so, something like the 86, 87. That was when it was just blowing up. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right in the middle of this. So I was like the first sponsored girl on, on a team. Um, I was like the only girl competing in these events that there would be hundreds of guys. And they capitalized on that. They put me in a lot of magazines and a lot of videos and put me out there a lot. But I also had this insatiable curiosity and it put me into the mix of a lot of high performance people that basically the rules didn't apply for us. Like maybe you had to go to school, but I didn't. Maybe you couldn't ride your bike off a roof into a swing pool, but I could. So when people tried to caution me, you know, of course it was the 1980s and, and there was this just say no thing, um, that didn't apply to me. And I was introduced to substances and I found heroin very, very early on. And I wasn't afraid of it because I wasn't afraid of anything. And so when I did it for the first time, Coupled that with what my experience and trauma was as a kid, and it clicked. It clicked a lot. I basically fell in love with it and very rapidly said, I'm going to have to change a lot of things in my life to incorporate this into it. I got away with it without a whole lot of consequences for a number of years. And I want to say that was about six or seven years before the wheels started coming off. I went to college. I got good grades. I didn't get arrested. And I was always able to, well, for a while, have enough to function. And when I was about 23, 24, uh, and into 25, that started getting harder and harder. And I started having to escalate things that I needed to do. And um, eventually I, I incurred the curiosity of a narcotics detective who came knocking on my door asking me a whole bunch of questions. So I was introduced. Uh-oh, Popo shows up. Uh-oh. Yeah, right? Yes. 
So I was introduced into the criminal justice system. And again, I'm pretty high. Some I love the way you say that, by the way. I was introduced. Let me introduce you to this, this problem. Here. Gotcha. <laughs> so uh, again, I knew what I was supposed to do. And I tried to give a good show, but I didn't really know what recovery was or how to change the things that I needed to change. And I really didn't know anything about trauma at this point or how it might relate to what and why and how I used. And during that first experience of treatment, I still wasn't. It was the mid-90s. Trauma-informed care wasn't really a thing yet. And so I just got the standard 30 days of treatment, go to meetings. I did. And on the surface, it looked like I was, quote, in recovery. But I was shortcutting a lot and not going very deep and not changing a whole lot of things. Were you sober during this period? I had periods of sobriety, but I would I would do what I would say is called chipping. So I would sneak away and kind of have a, a weekend. And, right. no, and right. no one would know. And I would think that I was getting away with it. And because I didn't get arrested or nobody found out, you know, continued with that. And again, that worked for a number of years. I want to say people thought I was in recovery for about seven years. And then one weekend, I said, I had a bunch of stress that was building up. It was just dumb stuff. But I remember thinking, you know, in recovery, they kept telling me, do what I'm supposed to do and this too shall pass. And everything was building up and it wasn't passing. So I was thinking I needed one of those weekends away. And so I kind of planned for it and I was going to do what I was going to do. But this time I chose a different substance. And instead of going with the opiates, I decided I was going to try crack cocaine. And um, that did not agree with me very well. And very rapidly that uh, I found I couldn't stop at all. Like I, I went compulsive from the jump. And um, I had also become a parent. And so my parenting skills and attention declined significantly, very, very rapidly. And I didn't like that, but the drug had started to get its hooks into me. And um, I started becoming that kind of machine that just needs to feed and doesn't really process responsibilities terribly well. Right, the prefrontal cortex is just gone dead, and the midbrain midbrain takes over, and you don't you don't choose at that point. You don't choose. I used that first time with another person in recovery, and he says he watched me inhale and hold that in for the first time, and he watched my entire face change, and my eyes just turn into what he called the machine. You know, you just turned into a machine, and I was like, sounds about right. And I stayed in the machine for about nine months. And during that time, I lost everything that I had kind of put together, houses, jobs, kids, everything. And uh, that was a fast-paced train wreck. And I experienced a lot during that nine months that I wouldn't wish on my worst neighbor. And kept trying, you know, kept trying. Like, I, I know what I'm supposed to do. I just can't stop long enough to make it work. But I kept going to meetings and I kept showing up, and, but I was getting angry that it wasn't working. 
And, but I wasn't putting the drugs down either. Uh, so I started having a lot of like externalized blame, you know, which we see in addiction a lot. Where was your honesty, integrity level at this point? Were you able to at least talk about what was going on to with anyone or was it no one? I was ruthlessly honest. And I, I made people uncomfortable because I would just tell people exactly what was going on and that I, I, I couldn't effing stop it. You know, they would come, these are people in recovery. They would come back with these platitudes of what I needed to change, but I wasn't able to get a foothold on any of that change. Yeah, I know, happen. I know. And and those sayings just, <laughs> just could drive you crazy when you're in the middle of a, of a relapse recovery. It just, you don't, don't use yeah. that language on me because it doesn't work. I can't fix this and I don't know what to do. Yeah. I get it, I get it. Yes. So I... Uh, ended up in another treatment. I think I tried seven treatments in the year of 2003, and I ended up at a at one that was going to keep me longer than a few weeks. And um, on that very first day, they did their little medical intake to make sure I was cleared to participate in residential treatment, and they found out I was pregnant again. And and that stupid piece of information, as ruthless as I was made me sit going through withdrawal, you know, go like where I wanted to run, like everything in me wanted to run and just go get one more. Um, and, I, and I had done that countless times before, but finding out that I was pregnant gave me that perfectly okay to destroy yourself. It's not okay to destroy this thing that's living inside of you, counting on you for its care and upkeep until it makes its way, way into the world. So I sat. I sat, the drugs got out of my system, uh, and I started trying to listen. And I just didn't talk for days, weeks, I think, but I just tried to take in information. And my brain started coming back a little bit online. And I started doing the stuff I needed to do again, and it worked, but I realized I had to go deeper into this. Um, I was introduced into trauma-informed care. I talked about the experience I had in my childhood with um, sex trafficking and exploitation at a very young age and um, started to heal from that. I started to integrate how that factored into how and why I use and what I could do to combat that with the experience still being part of who I am. And um, and I, again, I was not trying to make anybody comfortable during my recovery process. I was trying to be ruthlessly honest, as ruthlessly honest as I could, which, believe me, was still a far stretch from honest back there. But I was trying. When you finally got to the place where you said, OK, I'm going to make that choice, um, what was it like for you? What were the first few miles like for you? endless shame and guilt and just my my darn stubbornness you know i i'm not, i i hate everything about myself but i'm not gonna die i refuse to give my addiction that if i can at all prevent that from happening and so i've got to get through this and it's going to be a miserable few miles but hopefully it'll get better and it did <laughs> How long did it take for you to where you felt like, 
okay, you could begin to forgive yourself. And second question, how long did it take for you to, to feel like your brain was really working again? Because I know for me, it took at least six months before I could really feel like I could trust what I was thinking. You know, I mean, I just, I was still working. And I, I remember having a call to someone I worked with and they said to me, Mr. Shannon, are you where you just called me 10 minutes ago to ask me that same question? And I wasn't, I wasn't. When did, it, did you start seeing the, the forest starting to get a little thinner as far as thinking? I want to say at six months, I was still really in the forest thinking that I had possibly done some permanent brain right. damage. Me to too, myself. me too, yeah. So my, my brain kept, went back online. I want to say 18 months, two years was yeah. where I started thinking, okay. Which is scary because when we work with young people and people that are new in the program, I get that question all the time. Mark, when did, when did you really feel? I hesitate to answer because I don't want to frighten people. But I will say six months to say my name. Right. And then at least a year before I felt confident to be able to have what was coming out of my mouth, some sort of semblance of what I was hoping it would come out of my mouth. Right. I remember getting my year chip, still not trusting my next. Did you cry about everything? Everything? Did you cry about everything? (laughs) I mean, I mean, I would, I would go to, I would go to, you know, a gathering, a meeting and somebody would say something that would be a trigger for me. And I would be over in the corner with a box of tissues. And and it was mostly like, I couldn't believe I could feel these things so deeply again. Mark, I don't think I had ever felt before. You know, I had just boxed, I had compartmentalized everything. And it wasn't until they poked a hole in my trauma boat and that, and it started to leak that I was like, oh, this is, I'm going to be a mess for the rest of my life. What is that saying? As long as we're, as long as we're not speaking up, we're pushing down, right? Yeah. As long as we're not speaking up, we're pushing down. But I had great trauma counselors who said, that's okay. Let the boat leak, make a mess. You know, like, like that's part of this process and, and, and it'll, it'll eventually level out, but it's not going to level out for a while. So get used to this. Right. Right. That was hard for me to be, to know that I couldn't count on my brain to work because I was still obviously trying to make a living and, you know, define on who I was as a human being once I was no longer that other guy, which was full of secrets. Yeah. Right. So yeah. fast forward a little bit, you know, you decided mm-hmm. to, to make this big move. You had some early success. Maybe it was starting to build a little bit. So at what point did you feel like maybe I might be getting this? I knew the second go around that I had to blow everything I knew about recovery out of the water and explore everything. And so my reco- everything I knew about recovery wasn't big enough for the recovery I now needed. So I started opening it up to addressing number one, mental health. You know, how does that fit into my recovery? And I realized, oh, I got a lot of work to do on that. And it wasn't for a few years that I really started to kind of knock that about, but that was vital if I wanted my recovery from substance use to stay stable continuously. Because the mental health would bottom out and then that's when I would need one of those weekends.
I so relate to what you're saying is because you, you seem to have, for me, it was just my durability wore down. And I just got to the point where I'm just like, I, I just can't carry any more bricks. I can't carry any more bricks. And that's when I would be really at risk. And so what were the things that you did, the PA, that really changed that pattern for you? Because obviously we had to, you know, we had to change one thing, right? Everything, right? So what was the thing that you found you did when you started getting that turn towards, oh, the deep in the woods looks really good right now. Let's go. I read a book called Dharma Punks. And um, through that, I got connected to a meditation recovery group in New York City. And I used to make the trek out there once a month so that I could participate in the Dharma Punks group. And uh, that introduced me to Buddhist principles. And that really gave me some basic tools about what to do with all this anger. It wasn't something to fight against. It was just something that you had to sit with and accept. And that put it in a different framework. I didn't have to fix this. This was not something I needed to fix because there was nothing wrong with me. I just needed to observe it and, and no longer fight against it where I'd, I'd wrestle with it, lose, and it would take over me. I was introduced to Buddhist recovery meetings. Um, I started getting involved deeper in women's recovery groups, you know, gender-specific trauma-informed recovery groups. I, I participated in, in human trafficking recovery. You know, I just started adding pieces along the way to what I know as my recovery journey and what I do in my practice to maintain health and well-being. So that puts us where we are right now, which is talking about the things that you're doing in in real time, you know, in today's world. And I, I mean, I originally thought that this podcast was going to be mostly about that until we had our first discussion. And then I realized, no, not at all, because your story is so important to tell, because I think that one of the things the listeners to this podcast want to know about is, you know, I want to see real people. I want to see people with real stories. I want to see the dirt on the jeans. I want to see it all because the, the, the soft and pretty stuff is not necessarily for the people that listen to this podcast. So tell me a little bit about some of the roles that you're doing today in today's world. Fast forward to today. Part of my passion, and this was from the jump, I just didn't know how I was going to do it, was why is recovery so damn impossible for so many people who need it? And it's out there, but it's almost like you're forced to conform to do it their way or they discharge you from, from treatment. I always found it really, you know, when I learned about the criteria, the diagnostic criteria for substance use disorder and its craving. It's an inability to consistently abstain. It's, um, you know, maladaptive coping strategies. It's having consequences for the choices that you're making and indulging in this, in this behavior. And, um, you know, I'm like, these are all the reasons people get thrown out of treatment and recovery houses. And I'm like, why are, why are we being thrown out and discharged? I will no longer work with you. For confirming we have the diagnosis that you're getting paid to treat before. So I said this, we got to do better than this. Mm. We've got to be a, a more inviting, lower bridge, lower barrier. You know, how can we sell recovery to as many people who possibly want to dip a toe in the water? So I got involved in the peer recovery movement and basically sharing my story and my experience 
and accumulating knowledge and resources of where people could go to get the services that would best fit them and their needs, not someone else's needs. I did that as a volunteer at first. I got trained. I got every certification that I could get and eventually started working. And I, you know, I have two facets to my, my work at this point. I'm a program administrator over at Catholic Charities, you know, working with their peer recovery coaches that go out into the community and work at bedside and hospital emergency departments, meeting people, and they have something that has brought them to an emergency department and it's substance related, uh, post-overdose. Um, I got an abscess. I have got endocarditis, an infection in my heart valves from IV drug use. You know, what are these things that bring you in and how can we tell you a little bit about us and the things that are available so you don't have to come back here and have this happen to you again? Because nobody likes being an addict. They like sometimes what the drugs do to alleviate some of their temporary issues, but no one really likes the lifestyle that goes along with it after a while. It gets old. As I mentioned to you before we started recording, I was spending some time today uh, with some some childhood friends, and one of them was talking to me about the work in the community. And I said, "No one who grew up in our neighborhood ever decided, you know, what I want to be when I grow up? I want to be an alcoholic and addict. That would be. I, it just is not what people sign up to do. There's just no way we sign up to do it. No, but it it fits a need. It fits mm. a pothole in our soul." And, um, you know, if we don't treat the potholes, there's always going to be something that we're going to use to fill it. So best figure out what the potholes are, where they came from and how to fill them in in healthy, healthy ways. So you don't have the big bump bump to knock your wheels off. So for the listeners of this podcast who may be in need or may know someone in need or is a family member of someone in need, how do they get a hold of your organization and how do, where, do they, where do they go to find out, you know, what, how do I get started? Who do I talk to? Uh, I'm kind of, I don't know what I should do. Do I, is, am I qualified to talk to you? I mean, there's so many questions people just don't know. And that first call is so, so important. So how would they find out the important questions? How do they reach you? There's lots of good resources in Northeastern Ohio, which is really good. And Summit County happens to be really, really rich in them. But sometimes people don't know how to access them. If you wanted to talk to a peer recovery coach, you could certainly call our main office at 330-724-9059. And a lovely lady by the name of Debbie's going to answer. And she you just say, I, I think I have some addiction issues. And I, I would like to talk to somebody who, who knows something about that. And we can put you in touch with somebody and they're just going to have a casual conversation with you. Or if you're more ready, we can bring you in and kind of take a look at what your actual needs might be so that we can make sure we recommend a good fit for you. Let's say I'm the parent of someone or let's say I'm a partner of someone or let's say I just got a call last week from a a godparent or a grandparent. Like, I don't know what to do. What do I do? Who do I call? What do I do? And and are, are those services also available? Will people talk to them and say, here's what I might suggest to you? Yes. Uh, in Summit County, and this is through our county ADM board, there is a ADM helpline. And they can certainly have a very easy 
conversation with you as well. And you are going to call 330-940-1133 for that. That's great for family members, loved ones, somebody who has never really anticipated finding themselves in a situation where they needed to know things about substance use disorder and addiction, but here they are. And that's, again, that's great for substance use disorder, alcoholism, you know, any methamphetamine addiction, but they can also address gambling addiction, things like hoarding. You know, there's a, a number of things that are related to alcohol drugs, and mental health that our county ADM board uh, really, really addresses. And there are a lot of organizations and agencies and services that can get you connected with people who understand and services that can help intervene before the problem gets any worse. That's fantastic. So as we wrap this up, when I think about the person I used to be, because I'm frequently confronted with some sort of synapse fire that'll say, oh, remember that? Remember, And it comes out of nowhere for me. Maybe it's uh, a song I hear, or, you know, for me, it's maybe seeing a clip uh, online or YouTube of, of a band I used to be in where I can think of, oh man, I know who were and what I was doing back then. You know what I mean? And I, and I often want to go back to that person. And I always want to say, you know, hey, it's going to be okay. Let me t- I don't want to be a spoiler, but it's going to work out for you. You know what I mean? Do you ever think about what it would be like to go back, let's say if there was an Uber time travel <laughs> taxi, and you could go back and talk to China when she was really in a place where, you know, that, that hide in the corner of the room moments, right? You know, do you ever think about what you would say to that person? Because I think that for our listeners, you know, one of the things that they want to see with people that are coming through recovery is they that aspect of of like, yeah, you know what? I'm not that place anymore, but but I if I was able to talk to myself, I would just say, "Hey, it's going to be okay. You're not a bad person. You're not a bad person. You have a medical problem you have to first solve." And that's what I would say to me. And I'm going to toss it over to you and see what you have about that. I would tell them you will be whole again, but I would also let them know, but you're going to need to do the work. Mm. So be brave. And I know you can be, I've seen you do it a hundred times in a hundred different high risk ways. So do the work, be brave, ask for help. We've been talking to China Darrington and and I just want to say, China, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I mean, hearing your story and your honesty with sharing all the aspects of your story is so, it's what your word, it's brave. And um, people say to us all the time, you know, you know, how do you talk about what happened to you? It's like, this is, this is who I am. And I am today because of who I used to be and how I walked through that door. You know, I, I don't know if there's any final thoughts you want to say to our listeners at this point in time, other than, you know, steady on and, and, and keep moving. But I don't know if there's anything you want to say you want to close with. Addiction is a really important issue. If it's never affected you directly, consider yourself very, very lucky. But please know where in your community you could reach out to if somebody said, hey, I'm in this situation and I need some help. That's the least that you can do. That's the least work. If you have been affected by this, know that the guilt and the shame is inherent. It's part of the the condition itself. Don't let that bog you down and, and not 
be courageous enough to go out and ask for the help that you need because you absolutely deserve it. And I'd love to see as many of you who are struggling with any issue that you're facing to see you on this side of that work because y'all will turn into the most amazing people and I can't wait to meet you. You know, on behalf of everyone here at Recovery Talks, the podcast, I just want to say thank you, China. I'm Mark Lee Shannon. I'm your host for this podcast. You know what I just want to say for everybody? Thanks for hanging with us for this edition of Recovery Talks. And, you know, stay tuned for more episodes with more guests as we share our journey. And until then, stay in the light and keep standing and steady on. <laughs>